Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's go. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to start on verse 19. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, I believe that's page 673. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, that is your gift from us to you. You're welcome to take that. We have more. We'll resupply those. You're always free to take that. If you just happen to forget your Bible today, I really encourage you to use one of those Bibles to follow along. I'll be uh, preaching right out of the text that we are uh, covering today and flipping around quite a bit through the New Testament. And so it would be very helpful to you to actually be looking at the words yourself, even as we have them on the screen. I think that's one way that, especially if you're newer in the faith, that you really become familiar with the Bible, to actually have it open on Sunday mornings and and work through the the passage with the preacher. As you know, we've been working through the uh, letter called 1 Corinthians that Paul wrote to a very gifted but very selfish and self-absorbed and carnal church. And we find our way about midway through it. It's 16 chapters. We've been in it for about 21 weeks. I think this is maybe the 21st or 22nd message in the, uh, the series that we're working our way through. And really, in a lot of ways, this chapter is, in some ways, I think, the crux. It's the heart of why Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians. They were a very gifted church. They had a lot of spiritual gifts. They were in a very strategic city for the sake of the gospel. But because of their selfishness, they were very uh, conflicted. They were fighting with one another. They were... They were breaking down into factions where they were organizing themselves behind particularly charismatic personalities and, and they were exercising even the spiritual gifts that God had given them for the advance of the gospel, primarily for their own edification or puffing up. And Paul is writing to them saying that they really needed to lay down their rights as Christians for something much bigger than themselves. And... Although we may not have the exact same problems as the Corinthian church, the problem of consumerism and selfishness still plagues the church today. I think particularly in America, we, where we are the most gifted and probably the most blessed, at least b- with means, church in the history of, of the world, and yet we still struggle with consumerism and self-absorption. And in chapter 9... Paul is in the middle of his argument that he began in chapter 8 where he was encouraging Christians who knew that they were free to eat any type of meat. That's the issue going on in chapter 8, that there's these filet mignons that had previously been offered as sacrifices to these false pagan gods. That's what the meat markets were about back in those days. This was a pagan culture, and most of the people worshipped these false Greek gods. And right next to these false pagan temples were the butcher shops where they would sacrifice the the cattle and they would offer these these animals as a sacrifice to these false gods. But lest they waste the meat, after they sacrificed some of this meat to the god who was false, who couldn't eat it, they then sold it at Bert's butcher shop right next to uh, to the pagan temple. And so there's some Christians who are saying, Look, we can't eat that. That's meat that's been offered to an idol. They were kind of the weaker, newer Christians. 
And the stronger Christians are saying, that's ridiculous. There's no such thing as an idol. God creates everything. Don't get junked up with false religion. Eat the steak, man. Have a good time. And Paul then writes to them in chapter 8, and he affirms the stance of these stronger, more mature Christians and says, basically, you're right. There are no such things as idols, and so you're free to eat that steak. But there's actually a deeper, more abiding law going on here than the freedom that you have in Christ, and that is that you should be concerned for your potentially weaker brother or sister who might be, uh, who might be tripped up in their walk because of your freedom. And so he's saying, don't eat the steak in that situation. And then in chapter 9, he, begins, he gives them a personal example, which we talked about last week, where he says, look... Here's a personal example. I am free to receive pastoral compensation for my ministry labor among you, but I'm going to lay down this right so that you don't get confused. And so I'm giving you an example of how I'm laying down my freedom in Christ for the sake of your advancement in the gospel. And he concludes that thought with uh, some of the more popular This is one of the more popular passages in the New Testament that I think probably all of us, if we've got any Sunday school time in us at all or been around the church, are probably familiar with this text to some degree. It's been used and I think abused in a lot of ways. And so we're going to work our way through it uh, with a lot of humility. Let me read it and then I'll pray and then we'll work our way back through it. I've got three points today and that's about it. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, verse 327. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Well, these are weighty words. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us think on these things. Father, we do come to you now with humility. We uh, we confess that we are arrogant, self-centered Americans who uh, grow up in a culture that teaches us that the default is that we come to church to get something, to help us, rather than to see ourselves underneath your great providence and power and command. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves. I pray that you would do what only you could do. And in these moments, give us the unusual grace of allowing us to divest ourselves from ourselves for just a moment so that we might capture the heart that you have for Christians to be a witness for you. 
Lord, I pray for people that are already believers in Jesus in this room, that you would stir their hearts with affection for Christ and his mission. I pray that you would rouse sleepy Americans like myself from their self-centeredness. And Lord, for those in this room that do not yet know you, and certainly in a crowd this size, there are people in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus. They have not yet been born again. Lord, would you cause them to be born again? Would you, by the power of your gospel, let scales fall from their eyes so that they might see Jesus and that he would become altogether more lovely than their sin and they would turn from that sin and rebellion and trust in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would do these things for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go back to verse 19. Paul writes there, he says, I'm free from all, and I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more of them. Before we start to work through this verse, let's just look at this, at this progression of Paul's life. We know from the rest of the New Testament that Paul started out as a slave to sin, even though he thought he was righteous as an unbelieving in Jesus Jew before he came to faith in Christ. So Paul, even in his religious righteousness, is a slave to sin, and then he comes to faith in Christ, and then he becomes free in Christ, only then to go back into the mission of Jesus, which he calls here, he calls himself a servant of all, and that word servant is a similar word that at other times in the Bible would be translated slave. And so Paul goes from slavery to the self-righteousness of his sin and unbelief in Jesus to freedom in Jesus back into slavery for the sake of the mission of Jesus. Just think about that for a second. How often, how, how really, how we don't add on that, that consequence of salvation as we preach in America. It's, it's a lot of freedom talk, like this is what Jesus can do for you, which there, that is certainly part of the message of the New Testament. But Paul then sees what Jesus has done for him, not as a sort of end, but as a, as a means that now God has not only saved him for his own sake, but he saved him for something greater, which is God's glory, as he would use Paul to be a slave for the saving of other people. Just just to get us in that mindset. Contrast that mentality of Paul with the obsession of self-esteem that dominates much of contemporary Christianity. Just take a, uh, a walk through your average Christian bookstore. And listen, I, I know I rail on them a little bit. I, 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 I'm very thankful for Christian bookstores. But much of what is written today is aimed straight at you. And it just feeds this natural default of wanting, of just this sort of cul-de-sac that we treat biblical truth as merely for us and not to put us on some mission. And Paul, in that one sentence, just destroys that line of thinking. All right, then in verse 20, he says, and this is interesting, he's going he's gonna to separate two groups of people. He's going to say that to the Jews, who then he also further describes as those who have the law, and what he means by that is the Old Testament Mosaic law that God, in the Old Testament, chose Abram, made him this man, through whom he then brings this nation of people to being, the Jewish nation, and through whom these people, he gives this law 
to form them as his people, not just because he just loved these people, but he sets his love on the nation of Israel so that through Israel, as they conform to God's law, that they then would become a light for all the nations. And so there's this class of people, the Jews, those that have the law, and then he goes over into this other class of people, which is everybody else, which is probably most of us are descendants from Gentiles. Those that do not have the law. So he, he breaks this up into two groups of people. The Jews that have the law and those that do not have the law are Gentiles. And he says, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. So then he further describes them as those under the law. I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law that I might win those under the law. This is striking here now. Paul is actually a Jew himself. And he says that to the Jew, I became as a Jew, even though he already was an ethnic Jew. Do you, does, that, does that cause you to go like, what? that would be like me saying to the half Italian kid who grew up on the Mexican border, who was raised by a football coach on Ario Speedwagon and Air Supply, I'm going to become like one of those so that I might be more able to reach one of those. That's what I already am. <laughs> do, you, do you see that? I was describing myself, by the way. You're like, what are you talking about? Ario Speedwagon? Air Supply? California border? That's me, man. I grew up in the land of taco stands and tumbleweeds and graffiti and... and, and and we would go across the border. I mean, I grew up there. I don't have to know what it's like to reach a little desert rat in the California. I am one of them. So what's Paul saying? That I'm becoming like a Jew in order to reach the Jews. I think what it's telling us, friends, this is, this is, this is amazing. He, he is so identifying himself now by his new relationship with Jesus. His identity is so wrapped up in what Christ has done for him that it, it sort of eclipses his own ethnicity. And so for Paul, he is so absorbed with what Christ has done in his life that for him to re-enter his own native culture is a missions trip. Do, do you see that? I mean, how convicting is that? You know what I just wrote down in my notes here? It makes me wonder... Am I more fundamentally American than I am Christian? Look, I joke about being, you know, from California and having an Italian heritage, which is not true. I'm actually more Mexican culturally than I am Italian. I mean, I, I was the, everybody in my hometown is, is, is Hispanic. I joke about these things, but do you realize, friends, that Paul didn't see himself as so much as a Jew, as a Christian. So what, 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 what identifies you? We should lay down our southernness or our whiteness or our blackness or our Latinoness or, or our Baptist heritage or our Methodist faith or our Presbyterianism or whatever. Do you, do you realize how easy it is to identify yourself by something other than that which really matters, which is what Jesus has done for you? And Paul smashes that line of thinking. And so he says to the Jews, I became as a Jew 
to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those to the law. So what's he talking about? He's saying that when I was with Jews around my people for the advancement of the gospel, I was sensitive to some of their weaknesses and misunderstandings of the true gospel. And when I was around Gentiles, I didn't concern myself with holding to my Jewish heritage because I knew that it might obscure the reality of faith in Christ. Here's a perfect example. He, Paul has two ministry associates. He has many, but one, two of them that, that are particularly prominent in the New Testament are Timothy and Titus. Timothy was Jewish. At least he was half Jewish. His mother was Jewish. And Titus was not Jewish. He was, he was Greek. He was, he was a Gentile. And so he raises these two men up. They become his ministry associates, and they both become pastors. Timothy becomes a pastor at Ephesus, and Titus becomes a pastor in Crete and other places. And so these two men are now young pastors that he writes letters to in the New Testament that become the letters of First and Second Timothy and then Titus. Well, in the book of Acts, we see this beautiful picture of Paul living out this principle because Timothy is a Jew primarily pastoring Jewish people. And so Paul trains him and takes him, and before he makes him the pastor of this primarily Jewish context, he tells Timothy, look, man, uh, it would be best for you. You're not circumcised yet. You need to get circumcised because not that being Christian is... We know that that law is no longer in effect, but we don't want the fact that you aren't circumcised to be a problem for the Jews, and so we're going to circumcise you, Timothy. Awesome. <laughs> and maybe in that same meeting, I don't know, Titus is sitting there, and he's like, Whew. And he, he says to Titus, who's a Greek, who's going to pastor in a more Gentile context, he doesn't, he doesn't, cause or make Titus get circumcised because in in that particular situation forcing Titus to be circumcised would then potentially obscure the gospel to the Gentiles because then they might be thinking that wait a minute is is in order to be able to become a Christian do I have to sort of fulfill this Old Testament law and so do you see in two different situations in two different contexts he tells one man you need to do this not because this makes you a Christian but for the sake of the hearts of those whom God has sent you to lay down your rights in a very painful way for the sake of the gospel. And you, brother, don't do this thing because if you did it, it would obscure the gospel. And so that's a, a perfect illustration of what Paul is saying here in verses 20 and 21. And so then he goes on in verse 22 and he says to the weak, I became... Well, let's stop there for a second. Because I don't think, let's go back. I don't think, um, I don't think that that's an issue for us in our culture today. You know, I don't think any of you have ever gone into a church wondering that about your pastor. But if, you know what, if, if, if you guys were all like hardcore NASCAR fans, and uh, it was just better for me to, you know, get an old ratty pair of jeans and maybe even a tattoo and learn how to change the oil in my car, I'd do that for the sake of the gospel, right? And, and if that wasn't the context that God sent me to, if he sent me to some liberal place like, you know, San Francisco or Denver or, you know, New York and, you know, it was more appropriate for me to comport myself in a different way, a non-essential sort of stylistic way, 
I'd rock that puppy out, man. That's what we'd do. That's what I'd do. I'd, I'd, I'd actually go into the overpriced coffee shops and I'd sit myself down and I'd put my coffees, my folders instant away and I'd buy that ridiculously overpriced cup of coffee to, inter, to interact with all the urban elites. That's what I'd do. But that's not where God has me. So, so do you see where Paul is taking the gospel into each situation? And I wonder, where does God have you? And are you even aware of the peculiarities of the particular sphere of influence that God has you in? And are you even sensitive to the things that, that you may be doing that might be obscuring the gospel? And Paul, uh, Paul is taking aim at that insensitivity. And so he says in verse 22, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Hearkening back to what he said in chapter 8 about those who were having trouble with these weaker Christians who were upset about this food offered to idols. And so again, he picks up that line of thinking, speaking to the stronger, saying, Look, I lay down your right to have that meat for the sake of these weaker Christians. And then this great line, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. There's three things that I see in this text. Number one, and friends, this is not rocket science. First thing that I see in this text is that people need to be saved. Do you realize this language? This is offensive to many people here. This is offensive to the mentality of modern Americans. But this is biblical Christianity, friends. Paul uses this language of winning people to the Lord. He says in verse 22 that, that he is willing to become all things to all people, that he might save some, that God might use his witness. Now, I don't think Paul is all of a sudden reverting to some sort of man-centered manipulation. No, because Paul has written too many other things in the New Testament that we know that he believed deeply in the sovereignty of God, realizing that it is God alone and His Holy Spirit that draws men and women to Christ. But Paul was so absorbed with the mission that God had for him that he saw his responsibility as very severe, that it was his responsibility to actually be the means by which God would use to save some people. And so do you realize this is, look, we, we, we make ourselves so immune to the reality of heaven and hell and that people need saving. We just want cute little sermons and happy little Sundays to where we can just be told something to cheer us up, but the Bible jerks us out of that self-centeredness. Do you realize, friends, that people need to be saved? Some of you in this room this morning need to be saved. Do you realize that? This is, there is no place for the biblical Christian to just sort of be comfortable with self-help. Do you realize that we are all created to be immortal beings, that life lasts forever, and death is merely a passageway into eternity. Do you realize that? Do you realize how easy it is to lull ourselves into sleep, seductively thinking that everything's basically okay because we can pay our mortgage and we have chairs and we have a full room and oh, things seem to be going 
halfway decent. Friends, do you realize that people need to be saved? What do they need to be saved from? We need to be saved from sin, primarily, first of all. Jesus says, well, the Bible says about Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. The angel says to his mother that you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Look, the Bible is clear, friends. We're not morally neutral beings. We are, we are rebels. We are thieves of God's glory. Whether we are good, moral law-abiding Americans, or whether we are terrorists in the Middle East, all of us have turned God's goodness. We have thumbed our noses in the face of God's grace, and we have relied on ourselves, and we have coveted our own pleasure over the glory of God. The scriptures are clear about this. Ephesians 2 says that we are all, before Christ makes us alive, we are all sons of disobedience. We are object objects of God's wrath. And the Bible is clear that we need saving from this sin and the consequences of God's judgment and wrath on our sin. And that's what absorbs Paul to give his life away. Jesus, actually John, about Jesus, in John chapter 3 and verse 36, it says that whoever believes in Jesus shall have eternal life, but whoever does not believe in Jesus the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, I realize it's uncomfortable to talk about, but what a disservice I as a pastor would would give you if we didn't camp out on this notion that people need to be saved. That some of you in this room need to be saved. That some of our children and parents and brothers and sisters need to be saved. And listen to me, and I'm choosing my words carefully. How self-absorbed. In fact, how much would we have to hate those that we confess to love to just go about our life as if that is not a reality? Friends, do we believe this? Do we actually believe this? a very well-known pastor and author. He pastors a church in Michigan, and he has come out with a new book. His name is Rob Bell, and he has just published a book called Love Wins. And I have not read the book, but it seems like maybe what he is potentially advocating in this book is a sort of universalism. It has been an heir for centuries. It's the heir that eventually everybody just kind of makes it in the end, that certainly people don't actually go to hell. It is a heresy, a devastating air that has existed in the Christian church since the beginning. And here's the deal, is in the blogosphere, on websites, and maybe you've been privy to some of these things, there's all these Orthodox faithful biblical Christians that are just smashing this guy, coming to the defense of faithful historic biblical Christianity. And I certainly would align myself with these people that are defending. I have not read the book, but they're, they're, they're critiquing what is in this book and saying that this particular pastor author is leading people to maybe embrace this sort of universalism that then, of course, is 
contrary to the scriptures. Here's my point, friends. I would, I would certainly find myself solidly in the camp of those that affirm that hell, hell is real and that people are actually there. But, but what's worse? Actually believing the air that maybe this brother is trying to purport or believing this but living like it doesn't really exist. I mean, what's worse? Confessed universalism or confessed historical biblical Christianity and then functional universalism? What's worse? I actually think the way that I live most of the time is worse than this guy up in Michigan actually being honest about what he believes. Because we can look at that particular thing and say, well, that, I know what that is. But I have to be honest, when people look at my life, the heart that I have for evangelism actually obscures the gospel more than it advances it. Because I'm content with a room full of five or six hundred people. I'm content with a salary that pays my bills. I'm content with happy emails telling me how good of a sermon I've preached. I'm content with a good song and a violin and a little roof on top of the drum cage, whatever that's about. I'm, I'm content with those things. You noticed it. Well, I'm content with padded chairs and I'm frazzled when the network doesn't work and we got to... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm content with completely non-consequential junk that terminates on me. Do you see this? Do you feel the force of this? People need to be saved, church. Do we realize that? Do we even care? But, but do we just obscure it by saying, oh, he's a pretty good dude? I mean, he's all right. And we just jettison everything that we read in the scriptures because we are, we're, we're so scared that maybe God might press us outside of our comfort zone to actually be a witness and actually lose some of our social standing. Friends, I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to me, and I am a, I am a professional preacher of the gospel. This is what I do. And it is so easy for me to be content and rest in these things and blow by the language of saving. You need to be saved. Do you realize that? Your kids need to be saved, and they are only saved by the gospel. This is the gospel, friends, that God created us in his image and that we all have willfully disobeyed him and that the consequences of that rebellion which every person has participated in is eternal separation and God's judgment forever. And that in response to our rebellion, God sends Jesus to live the life that you and I should have lived he lives a perfect life of obedience where we failed. And then he lays down his life as a sacrifice, a substitute, a wrath-absorbing substitute on the cross so that all those who will turn and trust in him and turn from their own righteousness, turn from their sin and trust in him will be saved. The Bible uses that language. You must be born again. Jesus says it. You must be saved. If you are not saved, the wrath of God remains on you. Regardless of how good you are, human righteousness is as filthy rags before God. That means that there is only two potential eternal destinies for every person in this room. 
life eternal with Jesus or eternal torment separated from him forever. The Bible is clear about that. Let me read to you a scripture from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, just to drill this point down in our hearts. This is Paul writing to the Thessalonians, and he says in chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, we have it on the screen, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. He's encouraging these true believers now that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. So listen, what he said is, he look, God is going to have vengeance on people that are afflicting you. But he's not just talking about those people that were troubling the Thessalonians. He then expands it in verse 8 to everyone in the world who does not believe in Jesus. He says in verse 8, He's granting relief to you when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Listen to these words now. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Friends, it does not get any clearer than that. And that destruction, we know from the balance of the rest of the New Testament and many other passages that I could read you about this place called hell, that destruction does not mean a sort of annihilation or a ceasing to exist. We know from other scriptures like Mark chapter 9 where Jesus says about this place called hell that it is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And we know from other places like in Matthew chapter 25 where he says that this punishment is eternal. Friends, how self-absorbed do we have to be to not care about this and to not live like this is a present reality in the lives of many people whom we confess to love. People need to be saved. And they are saved only through believing and trusting in what Jesus has done for them on the cross. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, man? Have you believed in Jesus? What does it matter, friends? What does it matter? We're going to eventually be done here. Then we're going to go to lunch. We're going to watch a basketball game. We're going to take a nap. And we're going to get up and we're going to make some money on Monday. And we're going to trot off to Little League practice. And we're going to go to the gym. And we're going to stare at the person across the gym who has more muscles or a slender waist than us. And... Then we're going to repeat this cycle over and over and over again. Do we believe this? Do we believe this? Have you been saved? Have you trusted in Jesus? And if you have, is is your life 
Is your life not consumed with the reality of these things? Point number two is that God uses us to actually save people. He actually uses us to save people. Paul says that I have become all things to all people, that by all means I may save some. Here's the joy of grabbing hold of these things, is that God in his graciousness now uses us. Romans chapter 10 says this. This is the great confidence we have and hope we have. For everyone who calls, Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Carson Talley a young lady from this church read that scripture last week as she was telling us how she's going to Singapore and it certainly has the application of us sending people all across the world to help them and equip them preach the gospel. But it has this application in our everyday lives. That in our lives, we preach the gospel. In our lives, we, we want to make it clear by the way we're living that this truth of the gospel is real. And friends, this can go several different ways in our heart. We can either let that sit on us and it can cause such a, a sort of weight that we feel like we're unprepared and how could God use a person like me? And that right there, that mentality that some of you feel right now, like, oh, I'm not ready, I don't know enough, God can never use me, I've just, I mean, I don't know, I'm barely a Christian here. Friends, even that right there is a sort of self-serving mentality because you are, you are reducing the sovereignty of God in His desire to save people down to your preparedness. God delights in using jacked up people to be the means by which He uses to wedge open the heart of other jacked up people. Don't Make an idol out of your lack of preparation or your feelings of inadequacy. Live, invite, talk about Jesus. Just, just be the type of Christian who this weight of the truth of these matters just sort of sits on you. And I could prescribe some list for you now. I could give you three or four little things you could do. And those things may be very helpful. But I think what needs to happen here is the, the weight, the enormity, the the consequences of the gospel need to just be heavy on us. And, and we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to just compel us in love to be the type of people who order their lives in some way or get rid of things or invest in things that are of eternal consequence. And so, so rather than giving you a list of three or four things that you can check off and scurry on your way and then come back next Sunday and say, oh, I did it. I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit to just press on us this truth that God uses incomplete, jacked up people just like me and you to actually do these things. And then he goes on in verse 24 and he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
In other words, live your life in such a way that the prize of the fruit of living for the gospel is something that you're actually shooting for. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't just check the box in my cubicle at Tesis or Aflac and complain about how work stinks. I realize that maybe God in His providence has me there to be some little beacon of hope as I trust Him for His sovereign grace to maybe use me or you as a means by which we just point people to Jesus. Realizing, as Charles Spurgeon says, that it can be even a slender wire that brings people to faith in Jesus. Even a slender wire, the truth of the gospel can be communicated. And so I don't show up to work. I don't lead the platoon. I don't preach the gospel just aimlessly, but with the great hope and faith and trust that Jesus will use my efforts for something beyond myself. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Which brings me to the third and final point. Christians should live their lives for the sake of the gospel so that others may come to know Jesus. Christians should live their lives for the sake of the gospel so that others may come to know Jesus. Here's my first question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Christ? I'm not asking if you grew up in the South and your grandma's a, you know, the coffee maker at such and such, humana humana. My dog is bigger than your dog, Holy Temple, Mount Moriah. Second Baptist, Third Presbyterian, Fourth Methodist, whatever. I'm not asking you that, man. Do you know? Do you know Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? And if you have trusted in Jesus, what's your life about? I mentioned this last week. It is so easy to skate. It is so easy to skate as a Christian. Are we skating? Is there something in your life right now that is obscuring the gospel? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to confess that to a brother or sister, bring some accountability into your life, and stamp that thing out so that you would be a better witness? Is there something in your life right now that you care more about than souls, the people around you? I confess that there are things in my life that really functionally just crowd out my passion for souls. And I am confessing that to you. I am failing. And I'm repenting of that. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would just sit on me and squeeze selfishness out of me. And I would interact with people that don't know Jesus on a more regular basis and I would just be used by God in a more powerful way to bring people to faith in Jesus. Is that you? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to continue your self-absorption by letting this message just cause you 
feelings of guilt? Or are you going to let this be the Holy Spirit that doesn't give you condemnation, but gives you conviction? Not so that you can sit around lunch and say, oh, wow, Brad was hard today. Gosh, that, whew. Or are we going to wrestle with this, and are we going to let the Holy Spirit chasten us because he loves us and actually produce something in our lives? Are we going to do that? Or are we just going to go back? Are we just going to, are we just going to, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. Is that what we're going to do? Listen to what Spurgeon says in his little book, All of Grace. You know I love this guy. I'm going to give this guy a big kiss on the cheek in heaven, man. I'm going to, after I, after I uh, sit at the feet of Jesus for a, a millennium, I think I'm going to run over to Spurgeon and say, dog, dude, I used to read your junk all the time, bro. <laughs> this is what he says. If you are saved yourself, he speaks to both people, speaks to the Christian and the unbeliever. If you are saved yourself, be on the watch for the souls of others. Your own heart will not prosper unless it is filled with intense concern to bless your fellow men. The life of your soul lies in faith, but its health lies in love. He who does not pine to lead others to Jesus has never been under the spell of love himself. Get busy doing the work of the Lord. The work of love. Begin at home. Visit your neighbors next. Enlighten the town or the street where you live. Scatter the word of the Lord wherever your hand can reach. And then to the unbeliever, he says, Meet me in heaven. Do not go down to hell. There is no coming back again from that abode of misery. Why do you wish to enter the way of death when heaven's gate is open before you? Do not refuse the free pardon, the full salvation which Jesus grants to all who trust in Him. Do not hesitate and delay. You have had enough of resolving. Come to action. Believe in Jesus now with full and immediate decision. Take with you the words and come unto your Lord this day, even this day. Remember, O soul, it may be now or never with you. And friends, let me pause there and add to Spurgeon's words. Do not presume upon the grace of God. If you know that you have not trusted in Jesus, do not delay. Repentance is not yours to give. Repentance is a gift. Saving faith is a gift. It's not a work that a human can muster. And so don't harden your hearts. If God is knocking at your door now, that means that He's giving you repentance. Now, don't delay. Don't presume upon the grace of God. He may withdraw that thing from you. It may not be there on your deathbed. It may not be there a year from now. If you hear the Holy Spirit now, come to Jesus. Pass through any other thing that has obscured your view of Christ. Pass through any obstacle that has been in your way today. Don't get hung up by my manner of preaching or something that I may be doing that is offending you right now. Don't get hung up by some tradition or form. Come to Christ right now. You will stand before God someday, sinner. You will stand before God someday. Repentance is yours to have right now. It's a gift of God. Don't turn it away. Don't presume upon the grace of God. If you're not a believer, you know it. I believe the Holy Spirit has quickened your heart right now. You know it. Come to Christ. There is nothing between Jesus and His grace and eternity forever with Him but you and your own stubborn will. Come to Christ right now. Amen. Turn to Jesus. Even right now. How do you do that? Do you pray a prayer? Do you fill out a card? Do you join a church? No, friends. 
Those can be helpful means that help you walk in faith. But you know what you do? You turn from sin and you turn to Jesus. Believe right now. Trust in Jesus. Believe. See him as altogether more lovely than your sin. See him as altogether more worthy than your own sufficiency. Believe in Jesus. See him. Embrace him as the all-encompassing treasure of the universe. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. Right now, believe in Jesus. Do it, friends. Do it. Believe in Jesus. Come to him. Don't go down to hell. Remember, O soul, Spurgeon continues, it may be now or never with you. Let it be now. It would be horrible if it would be never. Again, I charge you, meet me in heaven. Lord, as we come now to respond to these words, once again, I confess my self-absorption. I am a comfortable, lazy fat, selfish American pastor and I repent. Jesus, I am so often more concerned with pleasing the people who are already Christians than I am advancing the gospel and I repent. There are people in this city, in this world that need Jesus and who you have called me to go to. And I am busy building up adulation. Forgive me. And if that applies to any brother or sister in this room in their own unique way, I pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would make us, you would just make us fed up with our self-absorption and that we would have the heart of Paul that by all means, by all means, necessary, we would make the gospel the all-consuming passion of our lives. And Lord, if there's an unbeliever in this room, would they come now? Would they come now? Would you do what only you can do? Would you give them a new heart so that they can see Jesus? So that they can believe in you? Would you do this now? Would you do this for your glory and for the joy of your people? In Jesus' name, amen.